0: Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of
1: Aaron K. Balavanian,
0: Ryan Levy Kitty McKeon With original music by Danny Shade this story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, episode number one. Prologue. January 15th, 2126. From Ruben Briggs, National Security Advisor, to Roberto Johansson, President of the United States of North America. Now, let see. Begin dictation. Dear Mr. President, attached you'll find the requested analysis of the Mars Governance Treaty. Section 1 deals with the strategic implications of reallocating our resources away from fleet renovations in light of the introduction of the Persian destroyer class. See blueprints and specifications from the DDI in Appendix D. Oh, God. This development threatens our interests closer to Earth. Section 2 examines the economic and political nature of colonialism. History shows that by the third generation, the cost of keeping most colonies secure exceeds the strategic and economic benefits they provide. As loyalty to the mother country diminishes, revolution commonly follows. The report details our reasons for suspecting that Mars and Luna both currently stand on this threshold. The circumstances surrounding the Asian nuclear war are also examined for their parallels to our current Cold War with the Persian Empire. Section 3 dissects the economic effects of EU withdrawal on the ore mining and processing industries. This section also elucidates the probable effects of Space Station Nineveh on interplanetary traffic increases in goods, services, labor, and population. The concluding section argues that encouraging private sector investment on the frontier is the only practical way to maintain the human expansion... Out past the asteroid belt, as exemplified by the private financing of Nineveh. It also contains recommendations for policy changes that will help us prevent Persia's ambitions from turning our conflict into a shooting war, along with um, projections of the five most likely wartime and peacetime scenarios. Finally, in an answer to your other question, I've settled on a fishing tour of the West Indies for my upcoming vacation. I'll send you back some Marlin steaks if I get lucky on the troll. Sincerely, Reuben Briggs, National Security Advisor, blah, 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 blah. Have that typed up and sent to the President's desk first thing tomorrow morning. I've got to be in a meeting here. If you need anything before I take off tonight, uh, beat my PPD, and I'll get back to you. Chapter 1. Predation and Other Acts of Mercy Whispers ruled the shadows in the dingy bar, as they did everywhere. In this bar, on a station spinning endlessly in the sky, the whispers centered around one man, or, more particularly, around his last name. This appropriate name don't exist, was all they could come back to. In the end, his name was all that mattered. He came like a demon to exact attacks, but the vast sums he acquired seemed incidental. The whispers said he didn't play for the cash, but for some dark pleasure gained from crushing his opponents. He carried no weapons, so far as anyone knew. He didn't need to. The terror he evoked was so profound that not even the hustlers dared accuse him of being a cheat. Yet he seemed to win nearly every game, and the shadow of doubt hung over every deal. But, like moths to a candle, they could not stay away. Sooner or later, his streak would end. The air of doom he brought with him did its job, weaving a mist of paranoia around him. In truth, he won rather less than it seemed. He always stayed just a little bit ahead, keeping his opponents in the game deliberately, only taking a big pot once in a while, building his victories cumulatively. Nearly a year ago, he had walked into the dive, his presence preceding him like an unspoken threat. A short man, narrow in shoulders and slight in build, dressed all in black, he moved like a cat. A black fedora shrouded his face forever in shadow, save for a long scar that ran down his cheek and the occasional glint of cunning from the hidden eyes and his bristly chin jutting out into the light. Everyone assumed he won more than he did, because of the aura. He was a viceless man. He drank iced tea and gnawed on dried ostrich, while his opponents sucked down marijuana and beer. He was never seen with a woman on his arm or a drink on his breath. A consummate professional he was. Nothing to distract him from the game. Not even a proper cigar. It just wasn't right. He even managed to cast a chill with his humor. His learnedness ate through his jokes like the devil's breath. The first day he came in, he was approached by an inebriated woman who slid into his lap as he sat down. He listened politely to her stumbling monologue as she tried to pick him up. Then, looking straight into her eyes, in a voice that would chill frozen blood, he intoned, I am become Death, the Destroyer of Girls. One or two men around the table chuckled at the mutilated quotation, but the girl blanched as if sentence had been passed on her, and then quietly slipped away in search of a less morbid bedmate. As one possible conquest left his lap, he turned his mind to the more important battle, and started to deal. Straight poker was his game. He varied the format occasionally, but nothing went wild in his games, nor at his table. Like a windless graveyard, an oppressed silence always hung in his domain. His glare spooked his opponents into folding, or into reckless bets and predictable bluffs. Very few that played him lasted long, whether or not they won. The presence he carried was too intense. This is why his name was whispered in bitter tones and muttered with reverence. Alex Art, they said. What a name. Should be Artless. That... Was the facade. Janitorial to
2: Security Checkpoint 42. Janitorial to Security Checkpoint 42.
0: Just beyond the sign lay Salvation. It hung there past the customs desk, 15 meters away. In giant, embossed bronze letters lit up like rays from heaven, it announced itself as the last stop on a very very long road. Space Station Sidon, gateway to the outer colonies. All he had to do was clear customs. One more handoff with the passport, one more long moment of suspense as he hoped furiously that it hadn't been spotted as phony and flagged since the last port. It was the longest 15 meters he'd ever seen. Sidon was a quasi-independent state orbiting between the Earth and Luna. Originally built and run by the Persian Alliance, they now had no military presence on the station and only a political claim to it. That ambiguity made it the perfect place for his needs. No one watching the outgoing traffic, no government presence waiting to nab him as a defector to snatch him back. Space Station Sidon. Last stop on the road to freedom. He moved up to the customs counter and presented his bag. His passport listed him as Joss Kyle and his occupation as trader. He always snickered privately when passing through a port. The occupation sounded uncannily similar to his own government's label for him. He handed it over and made a fuss of whether he had to formally declare the antique didgeridoo he bought in Australia. He knew perfectly well that the customs agents wouldn't give a rat's ass what he brought in as long as it wasn't easily convertible to an explosive or a projectile gun. Joss didn't carry much more cash than it would cost him to get off the station after his layover, and he wasn't stupid enough to draw attention to himself by letting them catch him with a weapon. As the customs inspector insisted, for the fifth time and now at the top of her voice, that he didn't need to declare a fucking musical instrument, he used the cover of Argument to slip a ceramic grip from his bag into a pocket so that it wouldn't go through the scanner. Then he relented. Her assistant handed his pass card back to him and waved him on, glad to be rid of him. After ten steps, he passed the sign, where, from memory, he turned left and headed towards a bar with the best poker game on the station. He was through. Alex sat at his table, gnawing his ostrich jerky apathetically before the day's take. This bounty had already paid more in winnings than had any previous commission, an acceptable thing insofar as it went. But after a year, even poker became routine. Deal, bet, bluff, fold, shuffle. Deal, bet, bluff, call, win. No choice, though. The employer was as unforgiving as a con. Alex had dealt with him before. He was the type who paid lavishly for success and extracted payments for failure in body parts. Uh, But the price is right. The highest bounty offered in the entire system for the most desperate and dangerous quarry on the planet or off it. A defector. And not just any defector, but the highest ranking defector in the history of the North American Union, one with a reputation for ruthlessness and a price on his head that had been attracting attention for years. One, Reuben Briggs. Besides, even when poker became routine, it was better than an ordinary stakeout, and it was the perfect place for an ambush. But in the doldrums of the daily grind, one face blurred into the next, each one telling a separate story, all promising and then failing to be the quarry, lining up for their chance to throw their money on the table and watch it slide away into Alex's waiting grasp. There were no two opponents alike, yet all were the same. Stupid, soft, slovenly drunks waiting to be fleeced so they could go home to an empty bed and dream about tomorrow's humdrum grind punctuated by shots of Jack Daniels. Five-card stud. Nothing wild. It was Alex's deal. Last game of the night. And there was a new face at the table. Alex spotted him earlier at the bar, sizing the game up. He drank expensive scotch, and like a connoisseur rather than a drunk. He was good at blending in. Too good. He gave himself away by the care he took not to give himself away. He sat at the remote corner of the bar and watched Alex play in the reflection of a picture frame, taking notes of bluffing patterns and trying to pick up on tells. The man had been watching all day, and he had a traveler's satchel with him, which meant he was either just arriving or just leaving. His clothes were tired, the pleats in his coat beginning to relax after too many hours on a warm body. Just arriving, Alex decided. The lurker took a seat at the table. He did not introduce himself, nor did he remove his hat or coat. He simply sat down opposite Alex and anteed in without a word. If he wasn't a professional, he knew how to fake it. Perhaps, at last, there was someone at the table who would prove a worthy adversary, a new subject for study. Jim, the assistant barkeep, sat down at the last moment and threw a chip in. The first round of cards went down, and the second and the third... Three players folded, one to a terrible hand and two to Alex's piercing gaze. The fourth went down and a three-way contest heated up. Alex, Jim, and the newcomer. The nameless man surveyed the table under Alex's watch, then glanced up with a defiant grin. With four out of five cards on the table, the bicycles seemed to favor the upstart. He showed the makings of a royal flush, while Jim showed only three of a kind and Alex nursed a low straight flush. It was the newcomer's bet, and with a flourish, he dropped a C-chip onto the table, bringing the pot value to 600 credits. Jim folded, cursing his luck once again, and stood up to return to his bar. Alex let a long moment pass while he studied his opponent. Despite his careful preparation, the man was too cocky and didn't play like a professional. He was too loose, much too relaxed for a man who held the key hole card. Carefully, Alex took a deep draft of his tea and shelled out two fifties, dropping them ceremonially on the pile in the middle of the table. The newcomer nodded and, with a smile, invited the final round of cards. The cards went down. A ten of clubs for the newcomer, a three of hearts for Alex. Alex's whole card completed a straight flush. The newcomer had to hold the queen of spades to win. It was too late, and the game had been too long, but Alex mentally sorted through the cards that he'd seen, and he was nearly certain it had fallen to one of the folded hands. Alex's opponent furtively glanced at his whole card. Very unprofessional. He then looked up expectantly, waiting for Alex to bet. Alex dropped a ten onto the table. The stranger saw and raised a single credit. This newcomer wanted to see the cards, but Alex could easily give him a run for his money. If what was stacked up in front of him was any indication, Alex could easily outbid him and force him to fold. Yet, baffling the few remaining onlookers, Alex raised the bet, only modestly. Back and forth it went. Raise C. Raise C. Alex's plan should have succeeded, would have, had the opponent's unspoken challenge not dared him to keep playing. The stakes went higher. Every time the bet was passed, Alex was tempted to call, and every time he raised. The stranger did not have the vital hole card, but the suspense was like honey on the tongue. Delicious and addictive. Now there was almost a grand in the pot, and the bet passed to the newcomer. The man palmed his hole card, looking long and hard at it, his glance darting between the card and Alex. For a moment, he seemed indecisive, then replaced his card face-down on the table. He took from his meager stack of chips a twenty and evened the bet, calling the hand. Hours seemed to blow across the table like pot smoke before either moved to show his cards. Then, with a look of triumph, the arrogant prick tossed his card on top of the pile of tokens. The two eyes of a dark queen looked up signing the public notice of Alex's greatest defeat. The stranger stood to take his leave. He collected his winnings and stuffed them into his pockets and left, leaving nothing of the massive pot but the Queen of Spades. As he walked out the pub door with his winnings securely in his pocket, Joss Kyle smiled to himself and headed to the docking ring to book passage on the next available flight to Luna. Jim heard the voice raging as he entered his apartment a few sectors away from the bar. Before he let the door constrict close behind him, he leaned back to make sure that the echoes of the curse didn't attract the wrong sort of attention. They were in too nice a neighborhood to risk being noticed. Satisfied, he peeked around the corner to make sure it was safe to enter. A woman sat on the couch, her hair pulled back and tucked up, a black fedora on the table next to her. Alyssa Hartman, the most irascible and severe woman he had ever had the privilege of knowing, held court in her work clothes over a scattered deck of cards and an untouched shot of peppermint schnapps. She stared malevolently down at them, stabbing one with her forefingers accusingly in time with the scripted cadence of a news anchor which poured mutedly out the wall terminal like so much drivel. A story about some celebrity holding a press conference to protest the exploitation of the colonies. Bloody movie stars, always getting into politics they knew nothing about. Jim moved to stand next to Allie and gauge the level of her fury. The actress on the screen, who was trying to discuss economics as if she understood that there was something involved in the subject beyond how much she paid for her makeup, was turning in an unconvincing performance. He waited for a moment to find the right opening in Allie's huffing grumbling. Then, as he spoke, he tried to hide the smile in his voice. But he didn't try very hard.
2: Problems with Siri North? I never thought she was that great of an actress anyway.
0: She looked up at him, but didn't smile. Instead, she raised the volume on her grumbling to the level of a dull roar. That
1: son of a bitch! Switch cards on
0: me! She repeated herself three or four times until Jim reached out and touched her behind the ear, shushing her and giving her the first human contact she'd had in 18 hours.
2: So he did. I guess you are doing pretty well this time, babe.
0: Jim settled down on the chair opposite her and managed, barely, to keep himself from laughing. Allie looked at him with spears in her eyes.
1: What the hell are you
2: grinning at? I saw him do it. Unlike you, I was actually watching him.
0: She rolled her eyes at him and grunted. Mindy continued.
2: You're telling me you really didn't see that sly way he palmed his whole card and put it back down again?
0: Jim shook his head, still repressing his overdeveloped sense of humor.
2: Come on, Allie. He was holding another card in his hand and switched him. I thought you saw him when we were milking the bet. I was shocked as hell when you let him take you.
0: Allie stared for a moment in disbelief at her husband, before letting go a resigned sigh.
1: I was so sure the queen had already fallen. I don't know, Jim. I've gotten so used to playing these crappy drunks that I neglected to watch my opponent. I ought to know better than that.
0: God damn it. She picked up her schnapps and eyed it. Remember the first rule of poker, love?
1: Yeah, I know. I know. Don't trust your luck.
2: I got cocky, okay?
0: Allie downed the cold liqueur in one gulp and tossed the glass back onto the table.
2: Don't hack at it too hard. You didn't lose much, and with any luck, you'll see him on Monday. If he's brash enough to pull a fast one on you, he'll be cocky enough to try it again. Besides, someone that professional won't be satisfied unless he wins straight. He's cheating because he needs the money. Or I figured him all wrong.
0: Jim rose from his seat and doffed his jacket, hanging it in the alcove near the door. Allie sneered through a paste-on Van Dyke beard.
1: I think you have him figured all wrong. He's the sadistic type. Likes to see what he can get away with. He has his badge of honor now. He's duped one of the best players in the system. We won't see him again.
0: Jim sat down next to her on the couch. She sighed resignedly, turned away from him and leaned back into his arms, letting the warmth of his touch soothe her body from without while the alcohol worked up her from within. He knew the signs well. She was dissociating from the part, trying to recover herself after a long day of being someone else. It didn't always work. Jim grinned as he held her closer. Wanna bet? He heard the smile in her reply.
1: Uh, no. I do believe I've had enough of that for one day, sir. "'Help me out of these things.'
0: She stood with her back to him and removed her hairpins. The dark, loose curls cascaded down over her shoulders. Jim reached out to stroke them, but she shied away, just beyond his reach.
1: Uh-uh. "'Wait your turn, Jiminy Cricket.'
0: She picked up the hat, straightened its brim, and tossed it onto the lazy chair. She followed it quickly with her trench coat, then turned to him.
1: "'I need to take
2: a shower. Could you start dinner?'
0: She unbuttoned the man's shirt and peeled it off, leaving the wide, bandage-style flattening bra underneath.
2: Certainly, madam. And what would her grace like to eat?
0: Jim dipped his head like a waiter and made as if to fill out a check, ignoring her attempts to pretend she wasn't deliberately strip-teasing.
1: Cut that out, you.
0: In one quick motion, she unclasped her bra, slipped it off, and tossed it playfully in his face. Okay,
2: okay. So what do you want?
1: Oh, I don't know. Be creative. <laughs>
0: Jim smiled conspiratorially, then resumed the posture of a waiter.
2: M'lady, you have just said the magic words. Prepare for a dining experience to pleasure your taste
0: buds. His French accent was terrible, but it was not wasted on Allie. She leaned over and kissed him. He slid his hands up her ribs and cupped her left breast. It was his end of the bargain. He watched, waited, and made sure she could remember who she was at the end of the day. She shuddered appreciatively and broke the kiss.
1: You, my dear, are a nut. Now go make me food.
0: She stepped around him, heading towards the sand, but he caught her wrist.
2: Allie, did you get his prints?
1: Oh, yes, I did. Uh, The bogus queen is in the lab, ready to be dusted and photographed.
2: I think I'll be a while at dinner. Would you check the prints after you clean up?
1: I suppose. You think he's our mark?
2: I think he might be. He's the best candidate we've come across in six months. White male, 40ish, just under six feet high, brown hair, green eyes, plays one hell of a poker game. He's slimmer than he was, and his face is different, but I'd expect that of someone who's been on the run for three years.
0: He tapped his chin contemplatively. The more he molded over, the more convinced he became.
2: And if he isn't Reuben Briggs, you can always report him to the Gaming Commission. Get him banned from respectable card houses.
1: <coughs> sure. Turn in another player, get myself blacklisted, blow the bounty, and probably lose our contract. Brilliant.
0: Jim stood and wrapped himself around her.
2: Hey now, it's not my fault. And not yours either. The guy was good. He was professional. And he got you. Time to move on.
0: He let her go and stepped back, admiring the muscles along her spine.
2: So you move on to the shower while I cook dinner.
0: She tossed a smile back at him and retreated.
2: Oh, and Allie? Yes. "'Might want to check your face before you get in the shower.'"
0: She felt her jawline and found the prosthetic scar and the beard still in place and laughed at herself reproachfully.
1: "'Thanks. I didn't know you were so into trannies.'"
0: "'Hey,
2: for the right woman, the guy will put up with a lot.'"
0: Her eyes sparkled, and she turned around and loosened the fastener on her trousers, hooking her thumbs in the waistband and letting them and her panties and the prosthetic penis sewn into them slide down off her legs in one motion— before continuing towards the sand with an exaggerated sway in her hips. She left the beard on, but he didn't care. He watched her ass swing hypnotically for a moment, smiled to himself with relief, and started for the kitchen. The ghost of alex's heart had been exercised once more. You've been listening to Episode 1 of Antithesis, Book 1, Predestination and Other Games of Chance, written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Original music for Antithesis written by Danny Shade, used here with permission. This episode starred Brian Levy as Jim and Aaron Balabanian as Allie, Some sounds courtesy the Freesound Project at www.freesound.org. This audiobook was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Production Studios in Castro Valley, California. Text copyright 1997 and 2008 J. Daniel Sawyer. The recording is copyright 2008 Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.0 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Well, that's episode one of the world's first podcast science fiction spy thriller. I had to dig a little bit for that because the uber-nemesis, T. Morris, did the first podcast novel. And then, of course, Scott Sigler did the first podcast-only novel. And then Seth Harwood did the first podcast crime novel. So I had to look a little bit, dig a bit, and find out what it was about Antithesis that is unique and brand new. And that's it. It's the first Podcast science fiction spy thriller, and I hope you enjoy it. You may have figured this out already, but if you're a fan of Scott Sigler or J.C. Hutchins, you should find yourself right at home here. But you're also going to find something different. Hutch and Sigler both write highly plot-driven books. Antithesis, on the other hand, is a character-driven work. These characters you're getting to know here are the pebbles that start an avalanche that will change the entire solar system in their wake. Plots don't make history. People do. And that's the concept I'm playing with. So what can you expect coming up? Well, you can expect a lot of intrigue, a lot of sex, violence, mystery, and suspense, along with a healthy dose of accurate tradecraft. You can also expect an excellent original score from my Apologia cohort, Danny Shade. I'll have contact info for him in future episodes once he gets up a website for his music. Until then, you can catch him on the Reason Driven podcast at reasondriven.blogspot.com or sitting at the round table with the rest of us on Apologia at apologia-podcast.blogspot.com. Of course, like any long novel, antithesis takes a while to get going, so I'm going to steal Sigler's motto on this one. Give me four episodes, and I'll have you hooked. Predestination and Other Games of Chance is volume one in a five-volume novel. Like Hutchins' Seventh Son series, Antithesis is a single, long story broken up into chunks. Although, unlike Seventh Son, it is possible to pick up this story at volume breaks if you insist on not listening in order, or if you just want to listen to one of the books. So I hope you'll join me for the rest of Predestination. It's gonna be a hell of a ride. You can email feedback to me at dan at jdsawyer.net, and you can leave feedback on the blog at www.jdsawyer.net. There'll be an antithesis-specific page up soon, but there isn't yet. Or you can call the Destiny line at 206-350-2340. Questions, attaboys, criticisms, and death threats are all welcome. You may also want to stay tuned for the promos after I'm done talking here. There's a lot of cool shit going on. As far as next week, what will Joss Kyle do with his winnings? Will Jim and Allie catch up with him before he makes his escape? Find out. Until next time. Antithesis is written and directed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Web design production and post-production services provided by Artistic Whispers Productions, Caster Valley, California, www.artisticwhispers.com. Theme music for the podcast is copyright 2008, Danny Shade, and is used by permission.